You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 112 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Staten, and uh, the Astros are about ready to square off with the New York Yankees in Game 1 of the American League Championship Series. And in just a few moments, Hunter Atkins is going to join me as we interview former Astros legend and 15-year Major League Baseball veteran Lance Berkman. We sit down with him for about 45 minutes in a conversation that you're not going to want to miss. And uh, in, in case you missed it late on Thursday night, uh, the Washington Nationals just uh, did not have it their way. They, they, they were looking to clinch... Uh, you know, their first postseason baseball series win against the Chicago Cubs and ultimately the reigning World Series champs got it done behind a, a valiant effort from closer Wade Davis, who had 79 career saves coming into the game, and he had never thrown more than one inning. What did he do on Thursday night? He had a seven-out save against the Nationals, including a nasty breaking pitch to strike out Bryce Harper and to clinch a, uh, a berth in the National League Championship Series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. And uh, here was an interesting note that I saw from Darren Ravel. It said that including tonight on Thursday, Washington, D.C. pro sports teams have lost 14 of their last 18 single elimination games. That is insane. We talk about heartbreak all the time in the city of Houston uh, with the different sports teams, but that is just a streak of bad luck for uh, the capital city. Uh, it's something that is surprising. It's something that we've seen with the uh, the Caps, for example, in the NHL. Uh, they haven't been able to get it done when it matters, and the Nationals were not able to get it done against the Chicago Cubs. So that sets up to be an interesting series. I, I, I really think that the, the Dodgers have to be the prohibitive favorites. Uh, you know, they, they, they finished the National League with the, the best record uh, in the National League. Of course, they had that hot streak over the, uh, the middle of the summer. Uh, kind of slumped a little bit late in the year, but have been clicking on all cylinders and swept the Arizona Diamondbacks in the uh, National League Division Series. And I think their pitching staff sets up really well against the Chicago Cubs, who had to expend uh, most of their bullpen on Thursday night. So we'll see what happens there. But I like the Dodgers in that series. Uh, here's kind of a note for the NLCS and the ALCS. The four largest cities in the United States, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston. All four will be represented in the league championship series. Now here specifically in Houston, Dallas Keuchel gets the ball on Friday. Justin Verlander going for game number two here in Houston. Those games take place Friday and Saturday before the series shifts to New York on Monday night. Uh, Astros are slight favorites according to the uh, the Vegas gambling books. We'll get into more of that a little bit later. But uh, again, we have a great interview with Lance Berkman. It's about a 45-minute conversation that both myself and Hunter Atkins have. Uh, and I hope that you stay tuned for that and that you enjoy that segment. But if you want to follow our work, you can, again, uh, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And, uh, of course, you can also follow Hunter Atkins at HunterAtkins35. Uh, he's going to be providing great content coverage as well as Jake Kaplan for the Houston Chronicle during the American League Championship Series. And if you want to follow my tweets, I'm actually going to be at the game on Friday. Uh, you can look at A. Staten. But uh, again, as mentioned, we have a great interview with Lance Berkman on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. 
You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is a a guy that Houston fans might be familiar with, and that's Lance Berkman, who uh, spent a long time with the Astros from 1999 to 2010, was part of the uh, World Series team in 2005. Uh, And Lance, first off, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. And uh, just from looking at, uh, you know, how well this team has played this year, uh, what are your thoughts just on how A.J. Hench is sort of capitalized on this talent on this team and gotten to to the ALCS well I you know I think AJ's really I mean I you know this is going to sound trite or whatever but I, I do think he's the perfect guy to manage this team and you know AJ's a, a, a very bright guy he's a guy obviously you know he went to Stanford and um, I think he's a perfect balance of the new sort of analytically minded approach to the game, but also, you know, he's old school enough because he came up in the same era that I did uh, where he, he respects the traditions of the game and and he has got a great feel for, um, you know, some of the gut moves that you have to make during the course of a baseball game. Uh, So I I really feel like that, that he is the right guy for this particular squad. And, um, you know, I think the Astros did an outstanding job as they've done with pretty much everything, uh, that, that, that Jeff Lunau has done, or Luno, I guess, like you actually say the name, but uh, everything that Jeff has done has, has worked out, and I think hiring AJ to manage this team is, is, a, is one of the, the positive moves that, that he's made that's put the Astros in the position that they're in. So you told me, Lance, uh, in a conversation we had two weeks ago, that you think this Astros team is more talented than that 05 team. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I don't think there's – I don't even think it's close in terms of position players. Uh, and and if you if you were to go position by position and, and try to kind of do the old, hey, would you rather have uh, Bregman at third or Innsberg or would you rather have Everett at short or Correa? I mean, I, I think their team wins pretty much this current – team wins and just about every position the one area that were where we had a, an advantage I think might have been in the starting rotation and I think our bullpen was probably better uh, than than the current Astro group with uh, with with Lidge and, and Wheeler and uh, and Chad Qualls and the years that they put together but uh, outside of the the pitching part of it the position players are, are definitely better than than what we were able to put on the field in 2005 with the experience that you had on those successful teams you must have thought I mean feel free to disagree with me but you must have thought that you guys were going to be in contention for years how hard is it you know to win it all to actually not just get to the World Series but to to win it yeah it's, it's incredibly difficult I mean there's so much you know, the, the, it starts with the personnel. I mean, you've got to have the you've got to have the personnel. You can't win the World Series with a team that has weaknesses in, in any area. I mean, you look back over the course of baseball history, especially recent baseball history, and you'll see that the teams that have won the World Series are teams that that are pretty complete uh, from the standpoint of you know they have a they have a, an offense that can generate runs. They have starting pitching that. Uh, can be dominant and and really can carry the team at times, and they have a uh, lockdown bullpen, great closers. I mean, so uh, the the world winning the World Series requires uh, contributions up and down your roster, and you really can't have any weaknesses. So you have to have the personnel to be able to put yourself in a position to 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 compete for a World Series, and then on top of that, you've got to have things go your way. You've got to catch some breaks here and there, and uh, you know there's 20. 
uh, how many 29 other major league organizations that are that are they have smart people and they're trying to to put teams on the field they're going to um you know compete with with you and so uh, invariably there's going to be several teams that are going to be equal to you from a talent perspective and and at that point it comes down to things like chemistry things like guts and heart and really sometimes things like lucky breaks and so uh, you've got to have all of those things line up at the right time in order to win a World Series. That's extremely difficult to do. It seems like the narrative uh, in baseball the last few, or, few years is that pitching and defense is what wins you championships. And obviously what we saw this past week with the Yankees knocking off the Indians, who arguably had one of the you know the most talented pitching staffs in baseball this season, uh, how much does that narrative sort of switch? I mean, we see that starting pitchers are starting to uh, you know go shorter in games. It's more reliant on the bullpens. And, of course, we have the Astros-Yankees, who finished number one and number two in you know, offensive production this year. Right, and I think um, in a longer series, you know, shorter series, the bullpen, you, you can use your bullpen like that more. You can uh, expose guys to uh, innings that they're not used to pitching in the regular season. But I do think that when you switch to a seven-game series and you have a little bit more of an extended look at another team, you've got to get significant innings out of your starters because I don't think your bullpen guys are able to – you know, pitch more in just with the seven game series. And, and if you ask your bullpen to p- pitch significantly more innings than, than they're capable of doing or than they're used to doing, I think you run into a situation like you saw last year in the world series where even really good relievers like Chapman are susceptible to uh, a breakdown uh, when they're, when they're overextended. And so you, I, I really believe even though the game has shifted, I know, into more specialization, more utilization of relievers in different spots, you, it's still fundamentally a game that is played with, hey, you have to have good starting pitching, you've got to get some significant innings to save some of those guys in the bullpen, and you've got to play great defense. And so if you don't do those things, I mean, you look at – over the course of the regular season, the Indians have a tremendous defense, but in the in the short series that they had with the Yankees, they didn't play good defense at all. And as a result, it, it hurt them and they lost the series. So, I mean, good just because a, per, a team has historically played good defense, it really is going to come down to, hey, who's playing the best defense in this particular series? Who gets the, the, the best pitching in this particular series? And you can kind of throw history out the window. So what we know about both the Yankees and the Astros is they have very capable players, and now it's a matter of who executes the best in this seven-game series. You know, it's interesting in talking about the use of the bullpen, Hinch's, it's not just him, but it, I've obviously watched him the closest. The aggressiveness in, okay, we have a lead in this game. We need to do everything possible to keep this lead. That the next game doesn't matter. Tomorrow doesn't matter. I asked him yesterday, does he expect to manage differently in the seven-game series than he would in the five-game series? And he said no. Like, So I was pretty surprised by that. You know, We may think, okay, these bullpen arms can't hold up. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's that they kind of ride those horses until they until they fail. And and some guys, you know, you got to know your personnel too. You got to know, hey, this guy's capable of giving me multiple innings, or he's capable of pitching back to back to back days. And you know, the one thing that benefits all these teams is the playoff format, where you have more off days than you do during the course of a regular season. Um, you know, you can you can mix and match a little bit differently because you know that, Hey, you know, we're playing two games. we got a day off. Then we play three games and we got another day off and, and uh, that sort of thing. So um, the, 
I think the mentality, though, of win tonight is important uh, because really and truly, you know, when you're in the playoffs, uh, that's, that's, those, those wins are huge. You know, when you're talking about, hey, we need to win four games to win this series, each win is so critical that if you have an opportunity to uh, put, put a game in the win column, you have to seize that, and then you just try to figure it out the next night. Well, so now I feel like you're doubling back on what you said. Now you're agreeing that they should be so aggressive. Pick a side, Lance. Well, I mean, what I'm saying is I think that – and not that, that I, I – I, I guess where, where, the, where the rubber meets the road on this deal is I don't blame the managers for going after a win when they can get it. However, I do think that the overall success of the Astros is going to be dependent on getting quality innings out of their starters, or the Yankees the same way. I mean, whichever team I think gets more significant innings out of their starting pitching – that's who's going to win this series. Now, you know, I think the way the managers approach each individual game and each night is a, is a, is a separate issue. So I know it sounds a bit dichotomous in terms of, you know, you're going against yourself one way or the other. But I think that, you know, ultimately when you look back at the series and you say, well, what, what was the deciding factor? I think it's going to be who gets the best work out of their starters. That's who's going to advance. And, you know, if you're having to go to your bullpen in the third or fourth inning – that's not going to play in the seven-game series. All right. Well, first of all, Dichotomous is the new nickname for Lance Berkman. Lance Dichotomous Berkman. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting that I share the same doubts that the bullpen can hold up, the bullpen can have this burden, that these so many pitchers can come in so early, pitch multiple innings, but maybe it's changing, right? Maybe the reason we doubt it is because we simply have not seen it done successfully over the long haul how which which would suggest to me that you would be very surprised to see that how surprised are you already that the bullpen use of the bullpen has changed so dramatically in postseason play how surprised were you when you saw Justin Verlander coming into game four not even an elimination game for the Astros yeah you know I guess you kind of have to there there at some point you're going to pay the piper on that deal you know you can you can sort of bridge those gaps in the short term, but I think you're going to pay a long-term price, and I think you've seen that. Uh, like I said, I mean, all you have to do is look at, at the Cubs last year in the World Series and how they would go to Chapman, and they were asking him to do more than he'd ever done. And, you know, then in Game 7, he ended up blowing the, the lead with giving up the home run. You just know, like, the, the more you expose those relievers to the games, the more susceptible they're going to be to, uh, you know, to a meltdown. And so – um, you know, I don't blame the managers for trying to win games when they have the opportunity to win them. And you have to keep in mind, too, that in baseball, the the game on paper really doesn't matter. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, certainly let's just say, well, you'd rather have Justin Verlander pitch a game in the playoffs than you would maybe a Brad Peacock or a Charlie Morton or a Lance McCullers. But the reality is that one of those three guys, Peacock, Morton, or McCullers, they may pitch a gym. They may pitch better than a Verlander because that's baseball. You know, in any given night, a guy can come out and have a great night. So I think that's one reason why you see these managers willing to sort of gamble and bring the bullpen in early in a game where they think they have a chance to win because what they're doing is they're saying, you know what, you never know. Peacock might go out there and throw six no-hit innings. I mean, he's definitely capable of doing that. Or McCullers may go out there and give us a tremendous start, or Morton, or whoever it is. And so you can kind of throw what they've done on paper out the window this time of the year because you know those guys have good stuff. 
you know they're more than capable of throwing great ball games. And so you say to yourself, look, you know, if we have a chance to win this game, we'll bring in a Verlander and win this game and take our chances with Morton starting the next game or Peacock starting the next game or whoever it might be. So that's kind of the mentality of, of these managers, I think. And, and uh, you know, you, you really can't fault them for that because it's true. And on any given night, you can have somebody play the star and um, the, the name of the game is having talented guys on your roster. And I think the Astros do have guys that can, uh, you know, that can be dominant. I mean, Morton's a, before he's throwing a hundred miles an hour, he's cutting the ball. He's throwing with, with conviction. And, you know, that's going to be tough for anybody to hit. So when you have that kind of a, a weapon in your back pocket, you're definitely more willing to take some gambles uh, in, in individual games to just, Hey, let's win this game tonight. And we'll just take a gamble and count on the fact that, you know, that somebody's going to give us a good start tomorrow. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned somebody giving a good start. And to me, that I, I think back to 2004 in the NLCS against the Cardinals, that game five where Brandon Backey was just in a pitcher's duel, uh, you know, where Jeff Kent had that walk-off three-run home run in the ninth inning. Uh, when you look kind of, uh, you know, in the playoff situations where guys can step up, how important is home field? Because I, I feel like, you know, at Minute Maid Park, when that roof is closed, it makes such a difference. Uh, you know, the electricity in the stadium. And we kind of saw that take place, uh, you know, in the World Series in 05 when Major League Baseball forced the roof open. I mean, how much of a difference is home field advantage in the playoffs? Well, I think I think there's it's a big difference. I, I really do. And, you know, some everybody's different. And I do know that, that baseball players are – they always perform better when they're in an environment that they're comfortable with. And most of the time – uh, your home ballpark is, is kind of your, your comfort zone. And so uh, when you get a chance to play at home in front of your home fans, and it, it, even if it's, it's not necessarily the, the hostility of the visiting crowd that, that makes the difference, it has a lot more to do with just being used to the hitting background, let's say, or, you know, the, the way the mound, like you've pitched tons of games off that particular mound. So, you know, pitchers know how, this mound is going to feel and it's, it becomes a comfort factor for them and not necessarily, Oh gosh, you know, there's tons of hostile fans here. I think it has more to do with you know, just being used to performing and used to competing on that particular surface that makes a difference. So um, I do think particularly in this series, because I know the Astros have a significant uh, advantage playing at home. And I feel like the Yankees have demonstrated that they are very comfortable playing at their ballpark. So the fact that the Astros have home field advantage in this series, in my opinion, it may be the deciding factor in the series, but it's certainly going to play a significant role. Well, just to let you both know that statistically it's been proven home field advantage in the baseball playoffs does not mean anything, but it's fine. I guess we can just throw our stats out the window. It's fine. We'll go with the intangible you know, vibe that you're, uh, you're gleaning, Lance. Well, and I think, again, it, it depends team to team. So you have to look at – you know, how the Yankees played at home this season versus how the Astros played at home this season. And I don't know the numbers. I'm sure you, you probably uh, have them in front of you. But, you know, if, they, if there's a significant – as an example, like I know that in the 2004 playoffs, they, we were not going to be beaten at Minute Maid Park. I mean, we just weren't going to. Like we had this confidence of playing at our home ballpark where – and, and, and it wasn't just in the playoffs. I mean, coming down the stretch in September, I'm not sure we lost a home game. Or if we did, it wasn't very many of them in 04. And so when we got against the Cardinals there in, in 2004, we knew if we played at Minimane Park, we were winning those games. So even though, you know, when we came back uh, in 04, we were down 02, 
I mean, it was like, well, we're back home. We're going to win three straight, and that's exactly what happened. So, I, 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 you know, if you're looking at those statistics overall, like home field advantage is insignificant, that, that may play out to be true um, in, in, the, in the aggregate. But I think if you're looking at individual teams, there are certain teams that seem to play better at home. And I would hazard a guess that both the Yankees, this, this particular version of the Yankees and also the Astros, enjoy playing at their home ballpark. I could be wrong about that, but the reason I say it's going to be significant is because I do feel like that both of these teams are very comfortable playing at home. Well, I think Aaron Judge is going to enjoy playing in Minute Maid Park, that's for sure. Um, what have you, have you paid close enough attention to the Yankees this year to have an opinion on Aaron Judge, the kind of season he's having as a rookie? Um, does he impress you? Just what's your, what's your take on Judge and uh, the Yankees' offense? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously whenever you break the rookie record for home runs, you have to you have to say that that guy had a had an amazing rookie season. Uh I do think, you know, as we've seen in the in the first series that because of the way Judge swings the bat, he's he's very susceptible to striking out. Um, you know, he has a a pretty uh, severe upswing on the ball, which when your timing is good, when everything's working in concert and it's perfect, you know, it, it tends to produce a lot more uh, home runs and power. But the flip side of that is when the timing is not good, your your bat is not in the strike zone as long, and as a consequence, you're going to end up striking out more. So uh, Judge is kind of like the Astros were for a couple of years there where, um, you know, you had a, a bunch of guys in the lineup that were – that were all or nothing. You know, you were either going to get a three-run homer or you were going to strike out. And so when your team is composed of that, that's that's really not a good thing because you're susceptible to having long stretches where you're not scoring any runs. And that's where I think the Astros have made uh, the, the most improvement over the course of the last several years is they have gotten away from that model. And now they've got a bunch of guys in their lineup that are able to put the ball in play consistently and are just good hitters up and down the lineup. But – to answer your question specifically, I think Judge is an exciting young player. I think he's, you know, obviously he's posted a historic rookie season. Uh, he's always a threat, even when things don't seem like they're going well for him. You have to respect his power. And, uh, you know, I, I look for him to at least have a couple of significant hits in this series. And then the other side for the Astros, lest we forget the best offense in baseball, Um who on the Astros, at least on the hitting side of things, has impressed you most this season? For me, it's been George Springer. I mean, I've, I've watched him since he was a young player, and I've actually had a chance to talk with him. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was down in spring training and, and uh, you know, saw how he approached hitting in the cage and whatnot. And I think that he has made a tremendous adjustment from what he was a couple of years ago to what he is currently and, you know, he used to be a guy that was all or nothing. You know, he could hit the ball out of the world, but there were many, many times. I think at one point, one year, he led the league on swings and misses on balls that were in the strike zone. And, you know, that's not a category that you ever want to lead the major leagues in. Uh, but he has made an adjustment where I feel like he's cut his swing down a little bit. It's become more efficient. He's keeping his bat in the zone longer. And as a result, he's getting more consistent contact. And, you know, he's hitting for a higher average. And so, to me, he's a guy, because of his speed, because of the fact that he could hit the ball to the ballpark at any time, 
And because I've seen kind of where he was and now where he is, he's exciting for me to watch. And I really appreciate the, the, the things that he's done and the changes that he's made that, that's made him into, you know, taking him from a guy that hits 260 into a guy that's, you know, hitting close to 300. So um, he's one guy that, that I'm really impressed with in the Astros lineup. I think one guy that I'm impressed with is Marwin Gonzalez. I mean, he's hitting 303 this year. He's got over 90 RBI. He's just doing it from both sides of the plate. I'm curious from your perspective as a switch hitter, uh, when you get into a playoff situation or or just any game situation, uh, how difficult is it to adjust from, you know, say going to the left hand uh, hand side of the plate to the right side of the plate, uh, you know, late in a game? Does that that sort of impact your mentality or how you approach an at-bat? I mean, for me, it really wasn't. It was was harder, actually, for me, believe it or not, to go from right. Like if they had started a left-handed pitcher and then, you know, three-quarters of the way through the game or something, they brought in a right-handed pitcher, and I had to go to the left side. That was always a tougher adjustment. I was a natural right-handed hitter, even though my swing from that side of the plate wasn't nearly as good or aesthetically pleasing. Uh, It was tougher to go right to left than it was left to right. I I really don't remember ever having a a problem, you know, if I'd been hitting left-handed and they brought in a left-handed reliever uh, going over to the right side. So it is a challenge. I mean, you know, when you're a switch hitter, you're always doing maintenance on your swing, and it seems like either one side or the other is not feeling good, and it's very rare that you get into a situation where you've got it going great from both sides of the plate and you're feeling great from both sides. So uh, the fact that that Marwin put the season together that he did is is very impressive. And, uh, you know, as a switch hitter, there's a a lot of advantages to switch hitting, uh, but there's also – uh, some challenges to it and, and whenever you can master those and, and produce the kind of season that Marwin has it's really impressive. Marwin uh, is one of a few players who've had special seasons. I think you know before you were talking about a champion to win a championship you need so many things to go right you know, so many little things to go right so many good breaks this team this season they've had Mar- outstanding performances from Marwin, Brad Peacock Charlie Morton having a you know a mostly healthy season for the first time in a while. Alex Bregman's development. We can go on and on, um, but also the opposite can happen in the playoffs. You know, the last series for the Yankees and the Indians, everybody in the world thought the Yankees were going to lose. We Austin and I very bombastically assumed that the Indians would come back and win that series. Um, so, if the Astros were to lose to the Yankees in the ALCS. Where do you where do you, what do you think are the weak points? What are the parts of the game that you think the Yankees could exploit? Well, I think you know certainly the the first thing that jumps out at me is is just the bullpen work that that the Astros you know they they I don't know how many relievers that AJ feels comfortable going with and using in, in high leverage situations. I think uh, that that could be a potential area where if you were going to point to a weak spot on the roster. Uh, that might be it. And I'm not saying that that is it. I'm just saying that that might be a, a spot where, you know, that they would be a little bit more susceptible uh, is their bullpen. And so, you know, you get into a situation where if Keichel doesn't get you, you know, what you think he's going to, or if, if Verlander's not pitching like you think he's going to, and you have to go to the bullpen early, you know, you could expose some guys that, you know, that, that, that may be pitching in spots that they're not used to pitching in. And as a consequence, you know, because they're uncomfortable, they may not produce the results that, uh, that you'd want to get. So I think that's one area uh, of concern, not really concern, but I mean, if that's, if that's, that's one area where you might could get into a little bit of a difficulty. 
And then the other thing is, I think you, you really have, uh, but fortunately the Yankees are kind of in the same position. And when I was handicapping this series, sort of looking at how do I compare the Yankees to the Astros, uh, from a starting pitching standpoint, I think both clubs are pretty similar. You know, I think you can compare CC Sabathia and Dallas Keuchel favorably to each other in that, you know, they're both left-handed. Neither has what, what would be considered overpowering stuff by today's standards. You know, both rely on location, movement, and, uh, you know, experience and being able to change speeds, locations, and whatnot uh, for success. And then you have uh, Severino for the Yankees and, and, uh, and Verlander for the Astros, who are in the power pitcher mold that, are, that have great stuff, that are what you would consider maybe true number one starters. And then after that, I think both teams have – somewhat of a question mark as to who their established number three is. I think the Astros uh, feel pretty good about uh, Morton being in the three spot, and I feel like the Yankees feel pretty good about um, Tanaka being in the three spot. So, you know, you really – those – those. I, I guess to answer your question directly, it would be – if I had any concern about the Astros, it would be maybe in the bullpen and maybe after your first two starters – trying to figure out who pitches in the three and four slot for you and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get the most productive innings out of those guys. Lance, you are a, a homegrown guy. You uh, played your college baseball at Rice. Uh, you spent, you know, 1999 to 2010 here in Houston. When you went to St. Louis in 2011, had the NL Comeback Player of the Year, won the World Series, what was that feeling like for you, knowing that you had to leave Houston, go to a division rival to get that done? Essentially, you were a traitor, Lance. Let's just be honest. Well, I, I would be a traitor had I chosen to leave, but I was traded, if you'll remember. Uh, at that time, they were, dis, they were dismantling the, the team. They had already traded Lidge. They traded you know most of the guys that they didn't re-sign Andy Pettit. So... The Astros essentially chose that path, and, and before you get too upset about that, you know, I think that's part of the reason why the Astros are where they are today because they were willing to break down the roster and, and kind of start over from scratch. But, um, you know, certainly I would have loved to have finished the job here in Houston. We were able to get to the World Series. We didn't ultimately win the World Series. Um, but at that point, you know, you realize, and that's, that's the kind of thing that stinks about professional baseball. When you, when you play amateur baseball, particularly in college, you, you're sold out for one school. You know, you're recruited, you're signed, and you're playing, uh, you know, your heart out for that school. And professional baseball, because of the player movement, because of trades, because of, you know, whatever the situation is, free agency, you can end up um, playing – the majority of your career like I did for one team and then find yourself in a, playing for another organization. And as a professional, you know, you give your best effort for that organization. And so uh, I love my time in St. Louis. I'm greatly appreciative to the Cardinal organization for giving me that opportunity. We had a great group of guys there. I love all those guys on that team. It was a wonderful experience that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm regretful and, and really, uh, you know, sort of have a, a, a hole in my heart, so to speak, that we weren't able to get it done here in Houston because, you know, like you mentioned, I'm from Texas. There was the organization that drafted me. I played my college ball here in Houston. And, you know, I certainly consider myself a Houston Astro, 
uh, and I would have loved to have brought a World Series title here to, to Houston. Obviously, I was, you know, merely teasing with the traitorism discussion and the, uh, you know, the <laughs> poking you about betrayal. But actually, it was an interesting way you framed it that that period of time where the, re, they were, the organization went back to zero, where they kind of restarted, it's what got them here today. So really, if the Astros win this year, you know, maybe the, everybody breaks even. Lance gets his ring. The Astros get their ring. We have a happy ending to that. Yeah, there you go. I mean, if they, I tell you what, all of the past, would be forgotten if the Astros were able to win a World Series here. I think this town would go nuts. Well, on that topic, I want to actually, I'm going to turn to Austin. I want to ask Austin, as a lifelong Astros fan, and, and like, you know, you're a effusive, nerdy baseball fan. <laughs> this is your favorite sport. Um, you know, has, has your fandom mostly been a matter of heartbreak? Has it, you know, Lance discussed, said before that there's a little bit of a hole in his heart because the Astros, he couldn't win a World Series for this city with the Astros. As a fan, do you feel that way? Do you feel, you know, snake bit? Do you feel that the teams, the franchises, you know, come up short for you in its entirety? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think one of my first games that I went to was back in 1991, 1992, and Craig Biggio had a walk-off hit against the Reds. I remember I was like five or six years old, went with my dad and grandfather. And ever since then, I was like hooked. I mean, I had always grown up, you know, watching the Astros. I think one of my earliest memories was watching Astros games with my parents just on TV, you know, probably age three or four. I think one of the things that I like about the Astros organization is they're easy to root for, easy to cheer for. Um, you know, win or lose, they've always given you something to be proud of uh you know even even during the you know the the down years in 2012 2013 uh it was still there at you know minute maid park it was it was nice to have the five dollar tickets uh <laughs> but yeah i think it kind of makes you know years like this more rewarding when you you see that patience kind of paying off and you know obviously it would be great to have uh, a World Series here in the city of Houston, especially, you know, after Hurricane Harvey, everything the city's been through the last few months. But I, I think this team has just given you a lot to be proud of. And I think the direction or of the organization gives you a lot more hope. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. Obviously, with the young players that the Astros have had, um, the, the the future is bright. I mean, you know, you're talking about – and, of course, you don't ever want to take anything for granted. you got to seize opportunities when they present themselves because – you know, look at the Nationals. That they were in a great position back in in 2012. Uh, to they and really and truly, they had the best team in baseball. And they made the decision to to shut Steven Strasburg down. You know, for the postseason, and it cost them. Um, and and so you have to seize opportunities when they're there. But that having been said, this Astro team is positioned to not just play well this year, but but for Heck, I mean, the, the foreseeable future. I mean, they've got a tremendous core group of players, young players that are still under club control. Not only that, I think they've got guy at the helm that really, really knows what he's doing. I, I just I continue to be more and more impressed with, with Jeff Luno and, and his staff and the, the analytics that they use to identify, you know, guys that uh, like a Josh Reddick or a Charlie Morton, acquisitions that, that are significant. Um, that they uh, that they they just have a great knack for identifying which players are going to be the ones that are going to help you. So uh, all that to say, I'd love to see the Astros get it done this year. But even if they don't, I feel like Astro fans have great hope for future success because of the personnel that's in play. 
See, that, that goes back to what I, I asked you know, in the beginning of our conversation about how when you were in the thick of the Astros success, you must have surely thought you would be there every year. You'd be a perennial contender, that you would have many opportunities, but it, it really doesn't, doesn't go that way, you know, sometimes. Or, or the Nationals you mentioned before, that's another team that just can't figure it out. The Dodgers, these teams can't, they can't get there. Um, would it, do you think that, just speaking of 2017, that it would feel like a letdown if the Astros did not at least reach the World Series? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, based on where the organization's been, it wasn't very long ago they were losing 100 games uh, to the fact that they're competing for an opportunity to go to the World Series. They're playing, uh, you know, the the 27-time world champion New York Yankees that have virtually an unlimited budget. Uh, I I feel like that this season has been a success. I, I would have felt very disappointed had the Astros not gotten out of the first round, and not that you ever settle for mediocrity because I know those guys are they have championship aspirations and they should because they're that talented but if it doesn't happen I don't think it's the end of the world and I wouldn't say this is a disappointing season I think this team has provided a tremendous amount of excitement they've played really good baseball they're a fun team to watch they've gotten themselves in a position now where they're going to compete for a chance to play in the World Series and so I think Astro fans can just enjoy this regardless of what happens so that having been said you know there's always um in professional sports, you know, you're, these little things matter. Like I'll give you an example. The, one of the reasons to me, the main reason why the Astros went through that down period, if you want to trace it to one decision, to me, it was the decision to not re-sign Andy Pettit. And I was, I had a very uh, up close and personal view of that because Andy's one of my best friends. And if you'll remember in 2005 and really 2004 and 2005, the strength of our team was our starting rotation, and Andy was a huge part of of the of that rotation, and he was a huge part of us. And he was coming off in 2004. He had elbow surgery, not Tommy John. He had a flexor tendon that he had repaired. It's a little different deal. But he comes back in 2005. He pitches extremely well. We end up playing in the World Series, and he's a free agent after the. Uh, excuse me. Then we go into 2006. Not very good. Uh, he pitched great. The pitching staff was good. Uh, and we missed the playoffs on the last day of the season. John Smoltz beat the Astros decided not to re-sign Andy. They let him go as a free agent back to the Yankees. He ends up winning a world championship there in 2009, I believe it was. And, you know, that really, that decision to not re-sign Andy is one that has sent the Astros into a tailspin because, in order to try to make up the difference, that's when they traded away a lot of our young prospects. You'll remember for Jason Jennings from the, the Colorado Rockies, and, and Jason's a great guy, but it didn't work out here in Houston. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the end, so to speak. So, you know, one personnel decision like that can really make a big impact. Um, but fortunately, I feel like that, you know, with, with what the, the Astros control Verlander's contract for another year or so, I believe, you know, Keiko's still under club control, Correa, uh, you know, Altuve. The very heart of our team is is uh, is going to be here for at least another year or so. And so, you know, this is the opening of the window rather than the closing of the window for this version of the Astros team. I think you've got me fired up, Lance, for the uh, <laughs> prospects of the, uh, the future of the Astros. <laughs> But, uh, you know, really quickly switching gears, uh, you know, you played baseball at Rice under legendary head coach Wayne Graham. I mean, he's still kicking. Uh, When you kind of look back at your experience learning under him, 
while you were playing from Bryce, what was that like? And also, I've heard speculation that, you know, maybe there was a spot for you on the coaching staff before you went back to uh, Major League Baseball. Do you have aspirations to, you know, potentially coach at Rice someday? Oh, I absolutely do. And I've told Coach Graham that, you know, when he decides that it's time to ride off into the sunset, that I would love to be the guy that, that takes his place. And, um, you know, you cannot uh, – and I, and I honestly believe this. I've said it in other forums. But to me, Coach Graham is the greatest college baseball coach of all time. And, you know, people might say, well, what about Rod Dado that won – you know, umpteen national championships. What about Augie Garrido that, that won seven national championships, you know, at, at, at Fullerton in Texas or, or Skip Bertman at LSU? What Coach Graham was able to do at Rice University, who had at that time when I was there an enrollment of 2,500 undergraduate students, and now I think, they, you know, they might have gotten up to, you know, 3,500, but the smallest Division One school in the country with, limited resources you should have seen the field that we were playing on when when i was there what he was been able to do at that at that place has been you know it, it, to me it's it, it's second to none and so it would be a great honor for me to be able to go back to my alma mater to be able to um you know be able to follow coach graham's footsteps so to speak and and uh hopefully i'll get the opportunity to do that obviously it's no guarantee that that will happen but uh, and, and, you know, coach deserves to, to be able to coach, uh, as much as he wants to coach. So we'll see how that situation plays out, but I certainly have aspirations to coach beyond the high school level, which I've done for the last three years. And really since I've retired, pretty much my whole MO has been to prepare myself to be able to, to coach effectively at the collegiate level. And it's at second Baptist where you coach high school. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. You and Andy Pettit. And my pitching coach is Andy Pettit, and you know it's this is funny ridiculous. because certainly, ridiculous. well, I mean, being a good player does not mean that you're going to be a good coach. No, I don't mean that. I mean that these like snot-nosed brat kids get to have Lance Berkman and Andy Pettit as their coaches. It's, it's absurd. Well, they most of them weren't even born when we were in our prime, so that that, that helps. <laughs> That's even worse. They have no appreciation for it. Yeah, they have zero appreciation, and so we are judged solely on our merit as as coaches and which is what I like but you know the thing about Andy is if you look at all the teams that he played on the fact that he was on the team elevated that team to a level that they you know of course with the Yankees you can't say they've never been there before but I, I believe that a big part of the reason why they won uh three state three straight championships you know they won in 96 they won in 09 uh is because Andy Pettit was on the team I mean this guy is He's one of the greatest human beings I've ever had the pleasure of being around, and he has a knack for elevating the play of, of guys that are, that are on the same team as, as he is, and he does the same thing as a coach. He's been unbelievable working with those kids and, uh, you know, really can – he has such a calmness about him. Of course, everybody knows that, that he was the, the winningest pitcher in postseason history, and just his calmness, his steadiness, uh, his ability to, to make pitches in the clutch, he's able to transfer that to the guys that he coaches. So he is a he was a great player, but he's also a tremendous coach, and, and it's a, a lot of fun working with him. Yeah, clearly what Austin and I have to do next time for the Weekly Brew Podcast is we're actually we're just going to let you host, and you can interview Andy for the podcast, because clearly you are doing some extraordinary publicity for him. <laughs> well, he is. 
I mean, he's one of my favorite people in the world, so I get a little bit excited when I get a chance to talk about him. I love it. Uh, it's infectious. Like it. it's All right, infectious. look, put yeah, in a good no, word for us. We'll get Andy on the podcast, and I'm sure he'll, uh, you know, gush about you the same way. Well, I don't know about that, but but I think he would probably be more than willing to come on the podcast. So. All right, thank you so much for taking so much time, Lance. For Austin, I will thank you as well. Um, if the Astros make it to the next round, to the World Series, uh, we would love to chat with you again. Man, I, I would uh, I would welcome the privilege of being on with you guys. It's a lot of fun to talk about baseball. It's one of my favorite things. Talk about baseball. Talk about Andy Pettit. Your other favorite thing? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll do it all, man. Yeah, yeah. If we talk, <laughs> you know, if we if we can talk about the Bible and Andy Pettit and baseball, that's yeah, then I'll be that's like, wheelhouse. I'll be like that's a pig. And Funny, I, yeah. I was gonna say, I have the a lot of people know me for loving the same topics. Obviously, as a you know a a spoiled Jewish kid from the Upper East Side of New York City. So same interest, you and me, Lance. You and me, Lance. <laughs> At the same time, I will say, having been a spoiled Jewish kid from the Upper East Side of New York, not to be redundant, I did share the affinity for Andy Pettit. So we're not, you know, our Venn diagram is not so far off, you and me, Lance. To know Andy Pettit is to love him. On that note, thank you, Lance. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. After a week full of NFL games, it's time to break it all down with the NFL Network's Taylor Bashotti on Taylor's Top Takeaways. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've had uh, Taylor's Top Takeaways, and uh, Taylor, first off, we're glad to have you back on the show. Glad that uh, you enjoyed the trip to the UK over for the uh, for the Ravens game, and uh, I hear that you brought a, uh, a special guest uh, for this week's segment. Uh, do you want to go ahead and provide the introduction? Yes, Scott Hansen is a special guest, and he is far more interesting than I am. You guys have me on <laughs> all the time, which I appreciate. So I want you to be able to get your questions into him because I know you've got a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, I, I, I appreciate you for taking the time out and joining us. And I, I know it's got to be pretty hectic for you right now. I mean, you know, gearing up for uh, the Red Zone channel on Sunday. I mean, it's seven hours worth of broadcasting. Take me through that process of just getting prepared, what that looks like. Yeah, well, good to be with you, Austin. Good to be with you, Taylor. And uh, I'm sitting here right now, in fact, in front of my computer and have my spreadsheets and my facts and stats and storylines that I start compiling really on Tuesday going into a, a Sunday show, sitting sitting right now with all that in front of me here. So uh, my job's kind of like, I think, a lot like uh, an NFL quarterback, not as, not as you know, uh, glorified as, as being on a football field on a Sunday, but most of my work, work hours are something that the audience will never see or the fans will never see. It's all, it's preparation. It's saturating my mind with all of the possibilities that could come up on an NFL Sunday. Uh, kind of think back to when you were in college and you'd had a, uh, a professor say, okay, the final exam is on Friday. Here's a list of 10 essay questions. Three of them will be on the final exam. Well, which, one, which three did you study? If you're diligent, you study all of them, and then you're, you're prepared for whatever the eventuality is. That's a lot like, like what I do on, on Red Zone. I've got 11 games I'll be dealing with this Sunday, seven in the early window, four in the late window. So out of those 11 games, I guarantee you two, three of them are going to have a fantastic finish. Less than two minutes left to go, game-winning score, some dramatic moment. I don't know which ones they are. I don't know which game, which team, which player will do it. So I'm preparing for all of them right now, 
and then when it actually happens, there we go. So like an NFL quarterback, an NFL quarterback is sitting in the meeting room, he's on the practice field, he's studying his video, he's doing all kinds of things to prepare for the three hours on Sunday. Well, I prepare for hours and hours and hours that fans will never see, and the only part that matters is, in my case, the seven hours on Sunday that the fans get to enjoy. Well, I can tell you that uh, the Red Zone channel is definitely uh, very enjoyable to watch. It's something that we definitely watch here in Houston. I actually got my dad onto it uh, a few years ago, and he actually doesn't even watch the game broadcast anymore. Uh, so, so I love it. Remind me, yeah. remind me to send you the recruitment for you. So we, we, do, we do give a, a, a finder's fee for new viewers, so we appreciate that. And tell your dad we, we said thank you and hello. Now, now, Taylor, Scott just said that you know he kind of prepares like an NFL quarterback, so I'm going to put this one on you. If you're kind of comparing Scott to an NFL quarterback, oh, oh, oh. who would you say that he is most like and why? That is tough. So, I mean, I'd have to think of a quarterback that is good at third down conversions because, I mean, you're constantly put on the spot and put on pressure and you're high pressure. Um, Let me think about that one. Um, yeah, right. I will say this. I will say this. One of the fun moments I had, and I, Taylor, I think I may have shared this story with you, uh, that I've had in the last uh, year in terms of, you know, I, I hear it from fans all the time, and it's, it's wonderful to, to know that fans, that, that NFL Red Zone resonates with the fans as well as it does. But I'm at the Super Bowl this last year. We're down in Houston, and I hosted what is now called um, – opening night it used to be called media day it was always on tuesday afternoon then they moved it to prime time for television's sake now they made it into a whole kind of a festival thing where okay both teams have arrived at the super bowl city and this last year they did a thing where they brought both sets of captains out and this was to the live audience at uh, the astros stadium down in houston and so there's like twenty thousand people in there and they brought in the national tv audience in fact NFL Network, ESPN, and Fox, who was broadcasting the Super Bowl, all took this ceremony live. And it was me on a stage introducing both sets of team captains on the Monday before the Super Bowl, kind of kicking off the Super Bowl festivities. Well, long story short, obviously Tom Brady's one of the team captains for the Patriots. And we did our little segment. They did an interview. They did some stuff. It was like five, ten minutes. And then the television crews took a, took a, um, a commercial break. The captains are then walking off the stage. Tom comes right over to me, and he taps me on the, on the chest, and he's like, Scott, you do a great job on red zone, man. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, this is the greatest quarterback of all time, telling me he watches my show. That's pretty freaking cool. And what, but I also thought this. I thought, wait a minute, Tom, when do you get a chance? I mean, I know if you're playing on Monday Night Football, you might watch, or if you played on Thursday Night Football. And I was like, oh, yeah, you got to watch the first four weeks of NFL Red Zone because you were sitting at home suspended. Anyway, him, him and his son, I find out after the fact, him and his son, his oldest son, uh, is now playing fantasy football, and that's what they do, father-son. They sit home when, when Tom's not playing on Sunday, and they watch NFL Red Zone. So not that that means a well, quarterback comparison because he's the greatest of all time, but, but that was a cool moment. Something that I find really fascinating is that I feel like there's definitely two different types of fans, and I think that you can also cross and merge and kind of be both sort of fans. Is like, you know, there's fans that have like their diehard teams, but what you're seeing a lot out of the younger generations, and which is something why I think that Red Zone is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow, and it's 
have become more popular is that fantasy football has become so popular that people aren't necessarily wanting to watch just one team anymore because their players are coming from six, seven, eight different teams. So they're wanting to watch a bunch of different games, which is why all, you know, major plays that are shown on red zone is a perfect platform for not only just your regular football fan that wants to see tons of games going on at once and know what's happening, but also the fan that really wants to pick out which players are making big plays and how it's affecting their fantasy league. Um, and Scott told me last night, actually, we were watching the game together, and he said, I asked him, I was like, how do I not know this? But who is your team? Like, you have to have one team, of course, <laughs> both for all 32. Love them all the same. But you have to have, like, your one hometown team or some sort of strong alliance to one. And he, he was like, no, I really don't. Like, I, I love them all. But Taylor, if you remember, I did say platform. that I actually do kind of have a favorite team. Not, it's not a single NFL team, but oh, right. my favorite team, team is my fantasy <laughs> football team. That's my favorite NFL team. <laughs> and I think a lot of people completely dovetailing with what Taylor just said is a lot of people feel that way, I think. Maybe not that that's their favorite team, but they want to see the moment when they're playing against whatever, their college roommate in fantasy, or they're playing against their brother or their sister in fantasy that week. And they're actually all sitting on the couch at the same time, and they're watching Red Zone and whatever. The, their opponent in fantasy is playing the Niners' defense. And then all of a sudden the Niners give up a touchdown, and we show it on NFL Red Zone. The people love to just – they want to jab their buddy and say, ah, there you go, That's less points for you, more for me, that type of thing. Or they've got whoever. They, you know, they've got Kareem Hunt running for a 50-yard touchdown. And every moment that we show them and every touchdown – has some type of an impact to someone somewhere in their fantasy league. And I think Taylor hit it on the head that that's one of the reasons for the just skyrocketing popularity of red zone. Yeah. I I think from my perspective, I mean, I I don't know, maybe I have ADD when it comes to watching sports, but I always have my iPad up, you know, just watching everything on Twitter, just following the analysis. And then it's nice to be able to see everything as it happens. I think that's one of a, uh, kind of the cool things about uh, the Red Zone channel. So if you aren't a subscriber, we're going to do a little plug here. Go ahead and uh, call your cable provider or dish or whatever and and subscribe to the uh, the Red Zone channel. NFL, if I may, nfl.com slash Red Zone. nfl.com slash Red Zone TV. You can just Google it either way and you'll, you'll end up with it. And if you haven't been on NFL Red Zone before, where you been, ladies and gentlemen? Get on the train, people. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of want to switch gears for here, and I'm going to pose this question uh, to both of you. Uh, this is probably one of the craziest weeks in the NFL that I can think of. Just, you know, everything that's going on on and off of the field. I mean, last Sunday we had Odell Beckham Jr. go down with an injury, J.J. Watt, Whitney Merciless here in Houston. Uh, and then, of course, we have the controversy with, you know, Mike Pence, uh, you know, kind of his political stunt. We have Donald Trump sending out his tweets. We have Jerry Jones's remarks. And then, of course, we have Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, is this, I don't know, to me, it just seems, I, I can't recall a time in which I've seen so many narratives off of the field kind of driving the conversation than the play on the field. I mean, what does that mean in terms for both of you kind of covering it? And how do you think that plays into, you know, the on the field product? Um, I would agree with you insofar as the variety of different off the field topics. There's always something tied into the game that feels like it's the biggest thing in society. Now, the National Anthem stuff is, is different and unique because it really has crossed over big time into 
you know, non-football fans are talking about it. And, and in that respect, Colin Kaepernick and, and some of the guys who have taken the approach that they've taken have succeeded probably in, in um, spurring on the conversation. Uh, whether or not the conversation is, is healthy and productive is probably another, another discussion because uh, how polarized we are as, as a country. Um, but, yeah, there's always something going on. I mean, Deflategate felt like it was the biggest thing in the world when it was happening, okay? Or, you know, Spygate back in the day felt like it was the biggest thing in the world that was happening. Uh, Brett Favre retiring and unretiring and retiring and unretiring felt like nothing's ever been like this in the NFL before. <laughs> that, I think that's just a testimony to how popular the, the pro football is, that something that doesn't have to do within the white lines necessarily can become a big talking point Monday through Friday when we're waiting for the next wave of games on the weekend. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And um, I don't know, I would hope this, and I think Taylor and I have had enough discussions that we agree on this, that, that we hope that pro football, of which she and I are a part, that, that we are productive drivers of, of, of healthy conversation and uh, helping society be shaped in a positive direction because when you wield the type of platform that the nfl has things are going to things are going to be driven in one way or another and we would all hope that it would that it would be driven in a positive direction not dividing people but bringing more people together and and taylor kind of kind of pivoting off of that i mean you are reporting throughout the week and you know as this news comes in i mean does it kind of change the way that you prepare and and you study the game throughout the week necessarily studying the game throughout the week because at the end of the day you know everybody's excited to see football and watch football games and I do think it's a little bit unfortunate that it's kind of taken such a big chunk out of you know like what we cover because that is what's making news and that is what people want to hear right now and I appreciate like Scott said I really appreciate the conversation I appreciate the platform that the NFL has and that it is sparking conversation in a positive way I just wish that it could be always productive and positive rather than kind of taking shots at players, teams, owners, how they feel about something that's personal. It's become it's put on this big scale. I don't know if it's always perceived to be per, like positive and productive. Yeah, um, yeah, I would agree. But yeah. as far as preparing for games and getting excited about Sunday, I think that that's always going to stay the same. Speaking of injuries <laughs> yeah. that you were talking about, though, with OBJ out, um, J.J. Watt, that was a tough day of football for the NFL. Nobody wants to see those players go down. It's unfortunate for everyone involved. Mm. Um, and then Luke Keekley last night, that's another heartbreaker. Yeah, that was actually a, a very exciting game. Of course, the Eagles uh, coming out on top against Cam Newton and the Panthers. Uh, Eagles look like they are the team to beat right now in the NFC. And Scott, I know that we have to let you go here in just a few moments, but I, I kind of want to get your take real quick on what's going on at Houston. Of course, we've got Deshaun Watson, who uh, looks to be like the uh, the quarterback class of you know this past year's NFL draft. Uh, the Texans struggling on defense with a bunch of injuries. What is your outlook for the Texans the remainder of the season? Well, let's just start right at the top where you just said. So Deshaun Watson, Watson, obviously the whole uh, draft process that he went through and the Dabo Sweeney co uh, comment about you pass on this guy, you're passing on Michael Jordan and people are like, okay, hyperbole from a coach who, you know, won a national championship with this guy. We love it. He loves this guy, uh, but he still goes in the first round. He didn't 
go as high as some people maybe would have thought or maybe thought that he deserved to, but he was coming out of an offense that was, you know, infant, uh, like galactically more simplistic than what the and, uh, intricacies of, a, of a, an NFL offense, certainly a Bill O'Brien offense. But he's still, you know, he's on the team, goes through preseason, has some nice flash moments, but he doesn't win the quarterback job. And we're thinking, okay, Bill O'Brien knows what he's doing. He sees every throw in every game and every throw in every practice that we're not privy to. And he sees him in the meeting room to see how much uh, he's absorbing in terms of, you know, the audible schemes and the, and the complex route changes and everything else that an NFL quarterback has to deal with. Well, he doesn't start. He has to come in after Tom Savage was ineffective. Well, well, guess what? You know who's leading the league in touchdowns right now? It's Aaron Rodgers, right? Okay, 13 touchdown passes. You know who's second in the league right now in touchdown passes? It's Deshaun Watson. He has 12 touchdowns. He has more than Tom Brady. He has more than Alex Smith. He has more than Drew Brees. Name any other quarterback, and Deshaun Watson's already sitting there. Now, not that it's just all about that, because some of those were garbage time touchdowns and everything else like that, but the kid has produced when he's wet in. And... Look, the uh, Whitney Merciless and J.J. Watt injuries are going to definitely hamstring the Texans franchise. Forget about just the defense, but the whole franchise. That being said, if, if Watson can play the way he is and makes defenses, stresses defenses with his legs and his arm the way that he's been, and he's going to get better every week by absorbing more of the offense, look out. No, it's very evident yeah. that you guys have a franchise quarterback into Sean Watson, which is something that you should be ecstatic for. and positive about obviously the injuries are tough but speaking on Deshaun Watson not only did he come in after not knowing that he was gonna play or start you know it's all with that that back and forth with Bill O'Brien but he came under an offensive line that was dilapidated I mean he didn't have much help just showing that it played up his mobility it played up his strength which is moving around in the pocket being mobile um, not holding on to the ball too long which is something that a lot of people say you know Tom Savage had an issue with. So I think mm-hmm. that it just it shows how strong of a quarterback he is in multiple areas. I'll tell you one thing, you, you Texans, uh, Texans fans listening to this right now, look, we're saying a lot of nice things, but you all got to show me something when you all get to Jacksonville now. Because that Jags game is like, that's one of the weirdest games <laughs> of the season so far in terms of, wait, which team is which team and who is who and who is good and who's not? You get a second crack at them if you really want to be the player in the division this year. As Jacksonville. Yeah. So, Protect yeah, Jacksonville, song. right? And, and <laughs> Jacksonville, look at they, they look what they did up in Pittsburgh and everything else. I'm saying Houston, you get a shot at them, but it's back in Jacksonville. I'm not, I don't have the whole schedule in front of me right now. Uh, but in upcoming weeks, you get a shot at them in Jacksonville. You got to show me something there if you want Watson's rookie season to be something special. You know, Scott, I, I think you're kind of getting me a little bit fired up about the prospects of Deshaun Watson. I hope that he can continue on this track and, and you know, not necessarily suffer, you know, the, the same path that we saw with RG3, you know, kind of starting uh, and taking the league by storm and kind of faltering after that. But, uh, Scott, it's great to have you on the podcast. We know we got to let you run, but uh, for fans, one more time that want to watch you this weekend on the NFL Network uh, or the Red Zone channel, where can they find you? Hey, all I'm saying is if you like every touchdown from every Every game, seven hours of commercial-free football, all the jaw-dropping moments, big catches, boneheaded coaching decisions, everything that some people are going to be talking about on Monday. If you want to see it live and as it happens on Sunday, NFL Red Zone's the place to be. You can check your local TV provider. Go to NFL.com/slash Red Zone TV. How's that for an infomercial? That was pretty solid.
Well, not my first rodeo, gang, but my first time with you, Austin, and it was very nice to talk with you on the podcast here today. Thanks for having me. Wow. So, Taylor, uh, you, you had texted me saying that you had a, a special guest uh, for your next segment, and uh, I, I think you just uh, hit a home run. Yeah, no, he's, he's great. He could entertain anybody, honestly. Like I said, his last little phrase about DirecTV, where you can get, or not DirecTV, oops, um, Red Zone NFL Network, where you could get it, it literally sounded like a commercial. So, it, yeah, <laughs> one in a million. <laughs> hey, you guys have a lot of talent there at the NFL Network, whether it's uh, you know former players, former coaches, uh, you know people that are passionate about the game, and it's it, it's kind of uh, fun to watch throughout the week. But I kind of want to dive in real quick. Uh, we mentioned at the top of the uh, of the segment that you were in London uh, for the NFL game uh, a few weeks back, and I, I'm kind of curious. You you kind of had a tight schedule. You flew in. Uh, you went straight to. I, I guess it was a practice or a play 60 uh, experience what was your vibe just being there in London and just seeing the hype around the NFL game and do you see potentially a viability for an NFL team or an expansion franchise perhaps moving over there at some point yes absolutely so I did so I flew out after work on Thursday and then landed Friday morning and went straight to practice and from the moment that I landed I could not believe how many NFL not NFL network NFL fans were in the airport and it's not just fans of the Ravens or the Jags in fact it was fans of the Steelers the Texans the Bears so many different teams and so many different jerseys and t-shirts I was kind of shocked um and then I went straight to practice for a play 60 event where I was able to talk with a bunch of kids around our age that were volunteering for this event and their passion for the game was something that I was not really expecting um, you know, it's a sport that they haven't really grown up with. And so it's hard to be very passionate about being a player when you haven't really necessarily grown up around it. But the Play 60 event kind of opened my eyes to what exactly the NFL is doing to expand internationally. And in that they are putting um, the sport of American football, not football, American football in schools at a young age. So they're doing it through flag football programs. So that way these kids have the opportunity to grow up the game and understand it and know it. And one player on the Ravens in particular, Jermaine Illuminar is from London. So he was kind of coming home, which was really cool. And the first time that he had ever seen an NFL game was 10 years ago when Dan Marino and the Dolphins came into town to play a uh, exhibition game. And he said he was going through the channels. He was 10 years old, stumbled upon the game and thought, why are these people wearing masks on their faces? <laughs> and they were just homeless. Um, and so it was fun talking to him and letting him see, like seeing him out there with the kids, teaching them about American football, because just speaking with him, thinking about what he, how things would have been different for him if he had grown up with it. And he thought it was very neat that the, like the country has just embraced the game altogether. Um, there was a festival that was going to be going on the following week because this is the first year that there are four NFL games here, so it does keep getting bigger and bigger. And it's two of the games are going to be played in Wembley Stadium, which is where the Ravens-Jags game was, and then the other two are going to be in Twickenham Stadium. The entire stadium was sold out. I mean, it sold out to 85, 90,000 people, 90,000 fans, and most of them, I would have to say, are people that live here, locals. And I thought that was really, really neat to see. I, I think it's kind of cool because we hear a lot about, you know, the NBA being a global game. Uh, and it seems like the NFL, you know, it is becoming more of a global game. Yeah. And I think that the NFL kind of knows that the only way that they can grow 
to the level they want to is to do it on an international level. And there's no better way of doing that than putting an NFL team in in London. I mean, that's kind of like the perfect spot for it. However, I don't know how much teams are going to want to travel because as we've seen, I mean, jet lag does do something <laughs> for a team. I can't blame the Ravens loss because they got slaughtered on jet lag. But I do think that it is tough that when some teams are having to travel an hour, two hours, and then some of them are having to travel eight hours, it's just, it's going to be, it's going to be a tricky situation to figure out. I also think that, you know, something that they're very hesitant about putting an NFL team there immediately is they want to kind of ease it in. They don't want to just have them show up. They want people to be passionate and know that they can sell out a full 16-game season, but so there'd be eight home games, so it's eight-game season that local fans are going to want to go to and sell out a stadium of 90,000 people. Yeah, it's... The way that the city and the way that... I mean, everybody there totally embraced the sport, embraced people coming over here to celebrate it. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing fans and jerseys and T-shirts of every different team. Like, I would say that I saw all 32 teams being represented there, which was really, really cool. And then, like, the Ravens had a bar, and there it was, like, the literally the line to get in was down the street, and that wow. was the exact same for the Jags bar. It was just so cool to see everybody coming together to kind of show excitement and support the NFL there. It was very, very neat. It was not something that I expected. Yeah, it's kind of cool to see that unity coming in. And uh, I, I don't know, I think it has a lot of potential for growth. And I think it's great that the game is expanding internationally. And, you know, we've heard speculation, you know, we saw last year, for example, the uh, the Texans uh, and the Raiders played a game in Mexico City. So I think there's a lot of uh, room for growth in the future. And, uh, you know, one last thing before I let you go, Taylor, uh, we spoke a few weeks ago uh, about your new show on the NFL Network, and that's in case you missed it. And uh, you've got a uh, another episode uh, that is probably uh, going to be on TV, as probably most of the people are listening to this right now, Saturday mornings. Uh, can you kind of give us a preview of what's on uh, this week's show? Yeah, so what it is, is like I just kind of described last time, it's in case you missed all 32. So what we do is we go through and find the best content that's created by the teams themselves. So, of course, team reporters and um, team coverage, they get the closest to these players. You get to kind of see what they're like in their everyday life. So they put out some really neat content that, you know, they just don't have as big of a platform that NFL Network does. So we kind of go through it, pick out which content we think is the best from that month, and then put it all together. And then we kind of have some fun with it. So one thing that I'm really excited about this week is that the Buffalo Bills did a, um, Bay Jones did a really fun egg roulette contest, which is where there's six hard-boiled eggs and six soft eggs, like regular eggs. And you guess which ones are which, and you crack them on your head. So obviously the goal is to only get the hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> and so Akbar came on it with me this past week, and we played egg roulette. So I guess we'll find out who wins tomorrow morning at 8.30. So it'll be the second episode of the series, and I'm really excited for it to come out. Fair enough. Well, uh, Taylor, we definitely appreciate you for uh, joining us this week, and uh, as always, it's great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 